This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The FT. Hello. In Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest, the sophisticated Gwendolyn declares, I cannot understand how anybody manages to exist in the country, if anybody who is anybody does. The country always bores me to death. This week on the Arts Podcast, we'll be exploring British writers' attraction, or not, to their landscape. The British Library has devoted its new exhibition to the subject, Writing Britain, Wastelands to Wonderlands. And in Cambridge, the Fitzwilliam Museum is showing prints by the contemporary artists George Shaw and Michael Landy in an exhibition called Edgelands. I'm Jan Daly, and with me in the studio are the poet Owen Shears, who presented the BBC television series A Poet's Guide to Britain and has published a poetry anthology of the same name. Jamie Andrews, Head of English and Drama at the British Library, and Jackie Wilschlager, the FT's visual arts critic. But before I turn to them, let's hear from the travel writer Robert McFarland, author of The Wild Places. We spoke to him on the phone earlier this week. I've always been drawn naturally to wild landscapes, partly because I grew up travelling to them a lot with my family to mountains and to coasts. Um, they pose a particular interest and a particular difficulty to writers because they don't really have any text in them. Um, cities are thick with letters and data and information and conversations, but uh, remoter places um, have a language all of their own and a letter set all of their own, um, and so they require a, a new language to be found by the writer. And I, I, I'm fascinated by the challenge that weather or light or elements posed to descriptive language. I just thought I'd read a, the opening of a chapter of, of a book of mine called The Wild Places, and it's just a, a scene-setter, really, about how, how seasons and birds and climate might act together. The autumn equinox was close, and a northerly wind blew down across the east of Britain from Scandinavia, carrying with it cold temperatures and migrating birds. Through the blue skies arrived field fairs and redwings, coming in from Siberian river deltas and Finnish forests, coming with the Arctic in their feathers, landing in gusts on the newly ploughed fields. Raptors, too, singly or in pairs, sparrowhawks, peregrines, moving south as the Norwegian coasts became too cold for them, and the polar sea began to grow its bark of ice. Owen, do you feel the same as Robert? And um, why are British writers drawn to wild places? It's a very good question, and um, I think it's something that we're especially aware of on this on this very small island of ours because we have so many different kinds of landscape. But I would say that it's probably... I don't know any writer who in some way does not engage with landscape, um, and that's partly because... Certainly in terms of uh, poetry, um, what a writer is often trying to do is to speak about that abstract world of feelings and thought in terms of the physical world. And 
One of the easiest ways of doing that is to go to the landscapes around us because they are both personal but they are also, of course, incredibly universal. And for, I think, any kind of writer, that's a fantastic starting place. Jamie, as lead curator of the British Library's Writing Britain show, if Owen's right and every single writer deals with landscape, it must have been quite a task to whittle them down to 150. Can you give us a short idea of how you set about making that selection? Yeah, I think you summed up one of the the great challenges that we had over the last year, which led to uh, all sorts of discussions and, um, well, maybe a few arguments. Um, it's the it's the sense of almost every text engages with landscape in some way, whether it's fleeing landscapes or creating them. Uh, and we obviously couldn't fit the whole of English literature into one room in the library. So what we tried to do was um, deliberately claim and deliberately make clear that we're not being comprehensive in this treatment, but that we're taking a series of um, thematic snapshots, looking at different types of places, whether it's wild places that we've talked about, whether it's the complete opposite, it's the anonymity and the tedium of suburban spaces, uh, whether it's rural places or whether it's uh, waterlands, and just giving a sense of how writers have engaged with these spaces. But this just being a starting point and hope Hopefully people who come to the exhibition will then think about other texts that we weren't able to include, other texts that mean something to them especially. Jackie, thematic snapshots, that's a lovely phrase, isn't it? Um, I mean, of course, artists are always have been attracted to wild places. Is it particularly so in British art? I think what's interesting about the British Library show is that it starts with the poets and landscapes of the mind. And I'm very struck by how many artists looked not just to landscape but to poets who've constructed that landscape for them. I've just been to a show at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge called Edgelands, which features the prints of George Shaw, the Turner Prize contender last year. And his landscapes, they're they're the absolute opposite of sublime. Edgelands is a, a lovely, lovely word for them. They're full of weeds and puddles and overgrown hanging things over concrete posts. But I talked to George and he said, always, always his reference is T.S. Eliot and the Wasteland. And and I think it is the poets who construct the landscape and the painters take something from that. I don't think we would have had romantic painting if we hadn't had romantic poetry. Oh, that's a fascinating idea. Um, Jamie, the exhibition shows the changing face of Britain. You come, you know, right into the cities and industrialisation and you have your dark satanic mills. One of the really fascinating things you do is make juxtapositions, which I absolutely loved. In one case, Vitrine, for example, there is Grey's Elegy next to Winnie the Pooh, and in another, Thomas Hardy next to Posey Simmons. Yeah, I mean, there's over a thousand years of English literature there. The earliest text is a 10th century, um, incredibly rare surviving Anglo-Saxon collectory of poetry. And the most recent item is was created in 2009. It's a 17-metre-long artist book. Um, but within that thousand years of English lit- literature, we were absolutely clear that we couldn't be uh, strictly chronological and that we wanted to use this opportunity to put works together that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, You're right about Grey and Winnie the Pooh. There's something going on there with earthly paradises, with the recollection of a mythical past. Another example um, in a different section called Beyond the City is where we've put J.G. Ballard next to G.K. Chesterton, 100 years apart. I don't think you could think of two writers who are more different. But the way we're doing it is through the idea of spaces on the edge that both writers dealt with. Um, Well, for Chesterton, it was a proto-gated community. Uh, For Ballard, it was a real kind of hyper-real gated community. But both of them deal with these isolated communities as on the surface seem incredibly um, you know, well-manicured lawns. They seem incredibly well-ordered. But beneath the surface, there's something more dystopic going on. Well, it sounds as if um, 
all the writers and artists we've been talking about, we immediately, it's interesting, we immediately go into the kind of anti-romantic. Um, but in a sense, this is all a great big romantic proposition, isn't it, Owen, don't you think, when you were making up your anthology and your series? I suppose to a certain extent. Um, I mean, it was very interesting there to hear the idea that the painters have gone looking to the poets because I sort of feel as though the whole the whole idea of landscape actually starts with art because actually until until we turn up there is actually no such thing as landscape there is just nature and how I often think about it is that landscape is what happens when we begin to filter nature through us in terms of a painting or a poem or a film um in terms of the romantic aspect I mean that's a very interesting question I mean if you looked at uh, someone like Wordsworth, actually, I think it comes back, actually, to that that concept that Robert McFarlane was talking about, about these places not necessarily being inlaid with, with text yet. Um, and so I suppose to focus upon Wordsworth specifically, I always feel as though he went into that Lakeland landscape, partly uh, uh, driven there by the actual accent of the people around him as well. He wanted a way to uh, marry the linguistics of the world that he wanted to uh, bring into poetry with the world from which that accent was formed. Did you see, have we all seen um, Jez Butterworth's play, Jerusalem? Yes. Yeah. Um, isn't it interesting? That's a whole um, thing about uh, about landscape and preserving landscape. And the, uh, he's called Johnny Byron, mm. resisting the building of uh, of a new estate on his plot of Dorset mm. woodland, even though he only lives in a caravan himself. And I think I was what thought- was really fascinating about that play, actually, was that it was specifically English and not British. Yeah. You know, for me, it seemed to me that it was really tapping into those ideas of the green man and the that sort of uh, transgressive sort of woodland space, which to me actually specifically comes out of a, a very ancient idea of um, English landscape. I'm glad you mentioned that play, which was just one of the most fantastic plays of, of recent times. And we've put that in the exhibition next to um, a work from 1622 called Polly Albion, Many Albions. It was a magnificent um Endeavour, a 15,000-line poem uh, that seeked to chart every corner of England and Wales. He didn't manage to get to Scotland, Michael Drayton, who who wrote this poem. Uh, He was intending to. Anyway, to chart every single corner of England and Wales and look at the legends and the symbols and the mythical figures who literally spring out of these corners. And there's the same sense going on in Jerusalem of the giants and the mythical creatures being inscribed on the land and emerging from the land like in a puck of Pook's Hill. Um, And so I think absolutely that Jerusalem, although it's incredibly contemporary with its travel and its caravans, it's absolutely rooted in, in, in one of the things that we see as being the heart of the exhibition, the way that stories are buried in the land. How interesting that contemporary artists are looking to that sense of fantasy and making something their own. I was thinking of the Turner Prize contender this year, Paul Noble, who's built up a whole city of his own as if it's sort of come from, from submerged and, and he's brought it into life, this Nobbs and Newton and I think we're seeing quite a lot of that with Charles Avery's own world that he's he's constructed, you know, with installations and sculptures and drawings. And it is, is as if they're saying, you know, can we make this our own? I'm interested in the notion that we might have actually backformed the landscape. I mean, the physical landscape, because after all, we're talking a lot about wild places, but we're on a tiny crowded island and there isn't really very much a space on our island that hasn't been man-made or or affected by man. Because we have such a strong idea of, of what our landscape ought to look like. I think we're making it all the time. You know, people are planting trees, people are making hedges. Um, 
One of the things I loved in the show is is something that you have on the wall, which is a poster. I couldn't see a date, but it must have been probably 1939 or 1940. And it says, you're Britain, fight for it now. And it's this image of deep, rural. I mean, it's it's literally Gray's elegy, you know, the weary shepherd wending his way. Presumably that was a recruitment poster. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I, I think from memory, that's placed um, above uh, the manuscript of Edward Thomas's Adlestrop. It is. And Edward exactly. Thomas's Adlestrop, the summer of 1914, the summer before war, where by chance the train, you know, Edward Thomas never actually went to Adlestrop per se, but the train stopped there and he records this moment. I mean, talking about snapshots, he just freezes time uh, in summer of 1914 before the world catches fire. And that was an image people were fighting for to return to. Of course, they returned to a very different country. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the tragic irony, of course, of Adlestrop is that it was only published in 1917 after Thomas had been killed in battle. But the return to normality was associated with a stable countryside. And they might not have come from it either. I mean, you know, I mean, if you were a, if you'd been called up from the slums of Glasgow, you'd probably never even seen that landscape. It was a landscape of the mind anyway, wasn't it? Um, Blake Morrison wrote in a recent piece in The Guardian that all landscapes in literature are invented landscapes. Um, let's listen first to what Robert McFarlane has to say about that. It's impossible to create, a, as it were, a pure transcription of a, of a place. So inevitably, there's, a, there's an aspect of, of reinvention there. And in some ways, the most powerful writers about place have been those who have, who have, as it were, invented it in the old sense of that verb, to discover in venere. They come to, to shape the way subsequent people view it and behave towards it. There's a writer called J.A. Baker who wrote a book called The Peregrine in 1967, which is intense in its vision of the Essex landscape that I, I, I cannot pass through that uh, region now without, as it were, seeing like Baker's peregrines or, or in Baker's prose. And the same is true in the Cairngorm Mountains with a writer like Nan Shepherd, whose beautiful little book, The Living Mountain, has, has shaped the way I've gone into those mountains as well as seen and thought about them for, for years now. Owen, is that true of your own work? Gosh, um, I'm not so sure about my own work other than, I suppose, when I'm writing about landscape, I am hoping to be able to uh, tap into something that all writers about landscape do, which is you know, something that Robert talks about there very well. It is wonderful admixture of um, the known place, and yet one of the most basic and fundamental joys of literature is having what is actually well-known suddenly made to seem strange again. Uh, when Emerson talks about watching the boughs of a tree move, he says you know, that it was both old to me and yet new. And that's what you are always trying to tap into. It's this, I suppose, a double sensation of both a recollection but also complete revelation as well. Um, And, you know, in order to do that, you have to be aware of how other writers have written about a landscape before you. So it's, it's this constant conversation. You know, every time I walk into a wood, I can't help but hear, you know, lines by um, Louis McNeese when he talks about a dark but gentle ambush. But if I want to write about a wood, I have to be aware of that, but I have to invent again. So he's right, you know, it's impossible to just sort of transcribe a landscape. You you have to distill it through yourself to essentially make it new again. It's exactly the same with the painters. There are landscapes, for example, Van Gogh in Arles, where you cannot go there without seeing... I mean, it's shaped by Van Gogh, it's framed by Van Gogh. 
And I was crossing America by train last year and I suddenly understood Ed Rocher. I couldn't see it without looking out of the window and seeing it in, in Ed Rocher shapes and, and, and forms. So I, I think that is it's almost the nature of art, I think, that you're of any art, that you're you're in dialogue with tradition, but you've got to let it go and and break through as well. I was very struck with it. There was a, a fantastic exhibition last year around JG Ballard and all the artists who whom he had inspired. And I thought, well, do, you know, do do we actually see these dystopian visions just because Ballard put them on the page? There were photographs, you know, with with the titles of the plays and in brackets Ballard. That that's that's how we see. I think actually what I found fascinating when I was organising the poems in this anthology, though, is that although every generation is constantly inventing around these landscapes, it was actually the uh, continuity of voice that really struck me, is that when a poet walks into a wood in the 14th century or the uh, 21st century, the basics of the experience remain the same. And there were lots of poems that I was finding about woods which were about um, escape and actually quite often a sense of conversation. Um, the trees are often talking, or we're talking with the trees. And then poems about towns and villages are nearly always about family, they're nearly always about leaving and returning and about sort of marking who you are now against who you were then. And then obviously the poems about coast and the seaside, again and again I was coming up against poets who seem to be at these very um, sort of internal but yet liminal places of choice and decision. So it, it is interesting, actually, that uh, continuity I actually found very poignant, you know, that um, across the centuries there, there's this fundamental experience that hasn't changed. And your, the, your title is very significant. I mean, once again, the anthology is called A Poet's Guide to Britain. In other words, the poet, well, you, the poet as editor, but the, all the poets in your anthology are actually showing us our country um, so it's the idea is that we're seeing the land through their through their eyes what's interesting is what the poets themselves make of that there's a couple of things in the exhibition that makes me think that that idea makes me think of um you've got someone like wordsworth who uh, did so much to encourage people to come to the lakes uh, and of course when they did he wrote a poem absolutely criticizing the tendency they had to come to the lakes reading books, not to be looking around at the sublime uh, majesty of the landscape themselves, but to be having their nose in the books. And, of course, the kind of books they've got their nose in are precisely his poems that have got them there in the first place. So it's this really problematic kind of feedback loop. And he actually wrote a poem um, called On Seeing Some Tourists of the Lakes Pass By Reading, a practice very common. It's not the snappiest title, but it gives the sense <laughs> of his frustration at what he more than anyone, has, has kicked off. And there is a really interesting thing there about the way we see landscape through writers. Um, but that does set up real expectations of fidelity. You've got someone like Graham Swift, who, who in a video for our exhibition, talks with a little bit of frustration about the fact that everyone assumes, everyone who's read Waterland assumes that he's from East Anglia. He's not, he's from South London. He said he'd never really been to the Fens, because why should he? It's a work of creative fiction, it's a work of imagination. And also that concept of seeing with new eyes, I think, you know, the quicker shortcut to that is to turn up somewhere where you haven't ever been before. And I did become very uh, fascinated by how... Quite often the poets who best wrote about the internal landscapes of a physical landscape, if you like, hadn't actually been brought up in that area. I thought it was interesting, Jackie, when you mentioned the two writers whose landscapes you saw were themselves in their day both stylistically way out there. I mean, they, so they completely reinvented a way of seeing. I think they also were interested in man's relationship with nature, which I think is a, a very big thing now for artists and probably for writers as well what 
as we master more and more technology and control of the world, where do we stand vis-a-vis nature? And there's, there's a show coming up at the Whitechapel around um, Pannoni's tree, one of his, his bronze trees, which is going to send people off, uh, you know, like your exhibition, off around London, looking at sort of underground rivers and trees and planting trees. And, and I think that, that sense of sort of, are we part of nature? Is it a separate category? What can we do with it? And I think that, you know, Van Gogh was thinking about that. I mean, as soon as you lose God, you get Van Gogh and you get these questions about nature. And... <laughs> Quite a good trade, real sorry. <laughs> And finally, is there a continuity, do you think, in the way that um, British writers and artists have responded to the landscape? I think that, that obviously the British Isles don't have those extremes of landscape that you find in, in you know, America or, or, or larger countries. And because of that, I think it's forced writers to um, generate a much more close attention to detail and to picking out surprisingly sublime or surprisingly quirky aspects of landscape because they can't just rely on the deserts, the mountains, etc. So you have to go into those edgelands that you were talking about. You have to go into the suburbs and find the poetry of the suburbs. Um, Arnold Bennett talks about the phantasmagoria of walking down the Upper Richmond Road. Well, perhaps you do have to find that kind of fantastic in the Upper Richmond Road precisely because there aren't those kind of other majestic extremes closer to hand. We haven't got the Rocky Mountains. Mm, exactly. Would you agree with that in um, the poets you selected? I think in part, although what we do have is an incredible variety um, in a very, very small area, you know. And so it's this interesting mix of sort of isolation and yet accessibility. And also I think we have a very um, a deep awareness of how kind of written into our landscape is. So if I'm uh, going into certain parts of Wales, I'm aware that this has appeared in sort of manuscripts you know, from the 12th century. Uh, and so from that end, I think, you know, it's a it's a fantastically fertile soil, you know, to be writing out of, but it's always forcing, um, I suppose, increasing invention just because there has been so much writing over this landscape. And I think that's very exciting to me. You know, it, it feels as though we are being constantly pushed to find, you know, as Robert McFarlane said, to find new forms of language to fit with our our sort of tight and crowded island. And do you think the same with the visual artists? Oh, I think um, landscape is very um, nationally defined in, in painting, no question at all. But I also think that that, having, you know, having said that, I think it's breaking down now, partly because it's a global art world, but also because I think artists are, are going into the... I, th- I think they're unravelling modernism. I think modernism was was not concluded. I think it's still open-ended. And so I think an artist like George Shaw is looking back to T.S. Eliot and, and saying, you know, what, you know what, what came out of this? And I think that, that is, you know, right, right across the board. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Thank you to my studio guests, Owen Shears, Jamie Andrews and Jackie Walschlager, and to you for listening. Writing Britain is at the British Library until the 25th of September, and Edgelands is at the Fitzwilliam Museum until the 23rd of September. We'll end with a recording of Harold Pinter reading a poem, his own poem, Joseph Brearley, 1909-1977. to Dear Joe, I'd like to walk with you from Clapton Pond to Stamford Hill, and on through Manor House to Finsbury Park, and back on the dead 653 trolleybus to Clapton Pond, 
and walk across the shadows onto Hackney Downs and stop by the old bandstand. You tall in moonlight. And the quickness in which it all happened. And the quick shadow in which it persists. You're gone. I'm at your side. Walking with you from Clapton Pond to Finsbury Park. And on. And on. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.